Hello, you're listening to the Let's Talk Future podcast series presented by Oppenheimer. If you're interested in the economy, markets, and investing in general, you've come to the right place. This series was created to fascinate and enlighten every type of investor. Curious about the latest consumer trends? How about innovations in healthcare or technology? The Let's Talk Future series definitely has you covered. Through timely and relevant conversations, we deliver the best thought leadership in the financial services industry. Our renowned hosts and guests explore big questions and big ideas and leave you with actionable insights. In this episode, our guest is Josh Shaver, founder and chief investment officer of Electron Capital, a New York-based long-short equity firm. And our host is Peter Catteret, managing director and head of sales and marketing at Oppenheimer. This episode was recorded on May 11, 2022. Thank you for joining us. As investors try to make sense of the current economic and geopolitical landscape, increasingly the energy markets play a role in those conversations. Aging power and utility infrastructure and the associated safety and security vulnerabilities that create, on top of the world's quickening march toward alternative and renewable sources of power and energy, is creating a large and powerful opportunity for long-term investors who understand this power and energy transition. My guest today is Josh Shaver, a true subject matter expert. Joss has been investing in the global infrastructure, renewable, and utility space for almost 30 years. His expertise includes more than a decade spent focused on the power and energy markets of Europe and Asia. Joss is the founder and chief investment officer of Electron Capital, a New York-based long-short equity firm that, in simple terms, invests in the global transition to alternative and renewable resources. Oppenheimer has had a long-standing relationship with Joss and the team at Electron. And Joss, I'm very happy to welcome you to our podcast. Great. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're certainly in unusual times with the war in Ukraine, the lasting impact of COVID, and obviously inflation having a major impact on the global power and energy markets. So with your background, let's start big picture before we dive deeper into the renewable space. Against this current economic and political climate, give us your assessment of the broad energy and power landscape. Yeah, happy to take you through that. There's a lot of cost cross currents happening in the sectors today. If you look at things globally, obviously, first and foremost, of what's happening in Europe with the Ukraine situation. There has been a lot of concern in Europe with respect to the flow of gas. Uh, that's a key part of the European industrial base. Power prices have gone quite high. Gas prices have gone quite high. So th- this is an area where it's not just about energy security in Europe, but it's also about energy affordability. And we're still at the very early days of affordability. A lot of the additional cost of uh, the power and the gas side has yet to go into people's bills. And when we feel that that does happen, you'll have some pushback from regulators and governments that will happen. So that's something that's happening in Europe. A lot of people are concerned about Europe. What happens if the gas stops flowing? Obviously, Europe relies on the gas. We think that there's a way to get through that. Analogous to that, this might sound a little bit odd, but analogous to that would be the Fukushima example in Japan, where you had about 20 to 25% of the electricity generation was actually closed, the the nuclear generation at that time, but Japan got through it with conservation and other efforts. Uh, People can remember about the Japanese going to work in short sleeves and shorts. There's a path for uh, that to happen in Europe as well through conservation that can happen on the, uh, for the gas side. So there's a way to get through. Uh, The other thing that's come out of that is a doubling down of the energy transition. 
right, in renewables to solve the security situation. And I think it's pretty clear that if the energy transition had already happened in Europe, we wouldn't be having this problem today, right? But it hasn't. It's an energy transition. It's not an energy switch. It will take time. But uh, Europe is very much behind on the the renewables and the, the build out. And then finally, looking at other areas, for example, in the US to go around the globe, we have higher energy prices here as well. We see the global commodities like with oil, we see it with natural gas as well. Uh, that's gone up quite dramatically. Gas will continue to play a key role in that transition as a transition fuel. Uh, the same thing in your, in Asia, you see very high gas prices with LNG also. So there's lots of these cross currents happening here and I can talk more in detail. So, so it is fair to say, if I hear your comments correctly, that perhaps this environment is really speeding up that transition that is the focus of your investment. Very much so. You have what's happening in Europe, obviously, getting behind with more subsidies with respect to solar and wind development, also hydrogen as well, a key fuel as part of the decarbonization process. When people talk about the electric, the energy transition, you've heard this phrase before. It's about the, you know, anything that can be electrified will be, right? And so that's where wind and solar kind of comes into play. And that's why mobility is being electrified with electric vehicles. However, there's certain things that cannot be electrified that are not prone to that. For example, for cement plants or steel plants, that's where you need heat involved in it. And that's where hydrogen comes in. So hydrogen is a key part and they're doubling down on hydrogen. But it's not just in Europe, it's the rest of the globe as well. And the rise in energy prices has increased the competitiveness of solar and wind globally. So that's why it's it's here to not only to stay, it will accelerate. There are certain things that are happening in various different countries that are causing bumps in the road and some of the build out from a regulatory point of view and in tariffs and, and these sorts of things. But in general, it is here to stay. We will be building much more solar and wind and also with hydrogen as well, eventually. So let's follow up to sort of a next question related to that. As an investor, you really focus your efforts on deploying capital into businesses that focus on the transition of energy consumption really toward that lower carbon solution. And those include a range of electric, gas, water, and waste utilities. And in your estimate, these are businesses that are really poised to be the beneficiary of a large influx of capital aimed at rebuilding an aging electrical grid and increasing that transition. So talk for just a minute about how you view the utilities in this move toward a more efficient and alternative energy world. Sure. So the utilities and particularly the electric utilities, the way we view things that they are sitting at the center of this energy transition. They're not only some of the enablers of it, but some of them are driving the transition as well. And if you look at the typical electric utility, the fleet, the generation assets for utility generation, historically, a number of those assets have been fueled by fossil fuels, such as natural gas, coal. In addition, we know that those fossil fuels have been fueling another industry, for example, the auto industry, particularly the internal combustion engine. Well, now with the advent of electric vehicles and as penetration rate increases for electric vehicles, what's going to be fueling those those vehicles will actually be the utility industry, the renewables industry, right? Because you need electricity that's going to come from green electrons. So what I mean by that, for example, you could buy an electric vehicle and you can be in a certain part of the country, but if a lot of that generation is coming from coal-fired generation, 
you're not being so clean. Those are not green electrons, right? We need green electrons. We know where they come from. They come from solar. They come from wind. And that's the part of this virtuous cycle that's happening. The more we build out electric vehicles, the more we're going to need those green electrons from solar and wind. And the more we're going to do things on the battery side to make that solar and wind reliable. So it's really a part of this transition. And the utilities are the key enablers of it. So we do spend a lot of time with the research and the management teams of utilities, in addition to the pure play energy transition companies. So Josh, one of the subsectors you define as an area of your focus within infrastructure is really this idea of green infrastructure. You mentioned green electrons as an important backbone of some of the move toward renewable, but the concept of green infrastructure is a crucial area of a focus for you as an investor. Let's start broadly and define green infrastructure and give me a few examples of types of projects that fit this definition. Green infrastructure, to talk about it, it's it's somewhat broad. It's the obvious like solar projects, onshore wind projects, offshore wind projects. That's a clear part of electricity generation and, and generating green electrons. You also have hydrogen with uh, electrolyzers that are starting to build. Uh, for the hydrogen industry to really take off here in the U.S., we're going to need a subsidy that's being talked about in the reconciliation bill. Uh, but in Europe, that's already got some subsidies that's already already moving. That's part of the green infrastructure. The other part is uh, is the electric grid. And the electric grid doesn't get an, enough attention, but this is a key part of the energy transition. We need to be able to move those electrons from the green solar and wind around the grid, right? We need a very robust grid. We need a smart grid. A lot of the wind pro- projects, for example, are not sitting close to the load centers and city centers, right? They're basically sitting out in the middle. We need to transmit those electrons. We need a lot more investment in the grid. The numbers that have been talked about for the investment in the grid is about three times what's already been invested in the grid to make, you know, by the time you affect this energy transition between now and let's say 2050, like the, the full transition. So it's a quite a substantial investment. The grid also needs to be uh, not only more robust, it needs to be smart. Because as we put electric vehicles onto the grid, that increases the demand for power. So for example, if you have, you buy an electric vehicle in your home, your power demand is gonna go up by about 40 to 50%. And I can tell you there's lots of parts of the grid in certain neighborhoods where you could not all go out and buy electric vehicles because it would blow the transformers. The grid is just not set up for that today. So as we increase the penetration of electric vehicles, we need to invest more into the grid to make it more reliable, to make it smart and bi-directional. Eventually, you will have flows that will come from the batteries in people's homes where they have solar rooftops, also from directly from the autos themselves or electric vehicles. And you need a grid that's gonna be software controlled that can be very robust and smart and bi-directional to support that. So that's also a key part of the green infrastructure. And bi-directional meaning the home can charge the car and the car can charge the home? Exactly. So it can go both ways. And you're also, because right now the grid is more of a one-dimensional type grid. It really flows one way. For bi-directional, you need to go two ways. You need a special uh, bi-directional inverter for that, right? You've probably seen some of the pictures of companies that will have autos that you'll see them kind of plug it into a, a home and it lights up the home for the future electric vehicles, that needs a special bi-directional inverter to, to do that. But eventually, when you look at all the batteries, if you need batteries to make renewables, solar and wind reliable, 
most of the batteries are going to be located in the electric vehicles. And 95% of the time plus, those electric vehicles are not being driven. So if we can access those batteries, you can use that in a, in a, into a bi-directional grid to be able to provide reliability to solar and wind, because obviously the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And it's a matter of kind of connecting all those batteries uh, there. So I can tell you about the scale of that. For example, a battery, if you put rooftop solar on your house and you put a battery, backup battery in your house, that's usually somewhere around 13 kilowatt hours for the size of that battery. In a typical electric vehicle, you're looking at battery sizes in anywhere from 80 kilowatt hours to about 150 kilowatt hours for a pickup truck, right? So they're substantially larger, magnitudes of seven to 10 times larger for that storage. But the key is how do you access that storage? So you'll see situations where eventually electric vehicle will kind of get into the power supply business that will also in the battery business that will be all controlled by software. It'll be a key part. And that's all part of this smart grid, which is coming but it requires a lot more investment today to make it happen. And there's certain companies that are key beneficiaries of that, that are basically investing, they bring the technology for the grid that, that we invest in here. Josh, how close are we to matching the consumer excitement with reality when it comes to electric vehicles and the electric vehicle grid? How far along are we in the process to having a sufficient grid to support true transition to EVs? both on the individual driver and perhaps on the commercial or fleet side as well. Sure. So the grid is capable today for the current level of penetration rate that we have for electric vehicles, right? It, it works It works just, just fine. But we're talking about penetration rates go up to, let's say, 30 40% of electric vehicles being sold in this country, which could happen by the end of this decade we need to have more investment to make it reliable or else you will suffer the consequences. So that, that definitely needs to, to continue. So it, it's something where we're at the early stages here. Electric vehicles will continue to, uh, to grow. I think consumers are becoming much more comfortable with things like anxiety, range anxiety, and these sorts of things. There's more uh, charging stations around, not, not just the superchargers, but also level two chargers that you'll start seeing around more and more. So as that happens, people become more and more comfortable. However, there are constraints to this and some of it has to do with the supply chain for particularly batteries. So things like lithium, nickel, you know, some of the key metals that go to the battery manufacturing, the price of these things have gone up dramatically. And the most expensive part, as you might imagine, of electric vehicle is the battery, right? So as those costs go up, the margins could be squeezed on some of these electric vehicles or the price might not come down as much as people expect. And that could slow down the rollout of the electric vehicle and the adoption rate as well. But in terms of efficiency and what it does to you know, the capabilities and what it does for the environment, there's lots of reasons for EVs to just continue. However, it won't all just be a smooth path. So, you know, we're kind of talking about EVs, but it really sounds like the broader conversations about the role of the battery is a key component in the energy transition and in the renewable conversation. So let's dig in there for just a moment. R really give us your view of what the future of, of batteries will look like at the core of the renewable ecosystem. Yeah. So batteries are, are absolutely key. And the reason why they're so important, in fact, it's a lot of people talk about it's the holy grail of the energy transition. 
And batteries are key for, for two reasons. One is to bring stability to the electric grid, right? Because the more wind, the more solar you have, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. You need batteries in terms of backup for that supply. In addition, batteries are used for mobility for electric vehicles, right? So that's something that's you know key for them as well. There's a lot of R&D going into the next generation of battery technology, right? Right now we're using a, just a straight lithium ion battery or an LFP battery as well as another type of lithium ion battery. These are batteries that are, are, are well-known, proven technology, and have been rolled out in your cell phone, but also within grid scale battery storage and also looking at electric vehicles. The next stage of battery technology is, is gonna be a couple areas that are talked about. One is increasing the energy density of the battery, right? And how do you increase the energy density? One is to put silicon in the anode. So there's a number of companies looking at silicon anode batteries because silicon can absorb a lot more lithium ions so you can increase energy density. There's constraints with that, of course, but uh, that's one of the areas of next generation. And then number two, just broadly categorized is solid state battery. There's a number of companies out there that are investigating solid state battery technology. We believe that of all the battery manufacturers out there, we've met with all of them, we've researched all of them, including more than a dozen private companies as well. We think the silicon anode increased energy density will be first to roll out and be used in various consumer products and also electric vehicles. And then next, follow that also has promise is solid state, but solid state is further to the right, but they're both have prospects on this energy transition. Just dig into the realities of the supply chain disruptions around current battery technology, if you would, for just a moment. How tight are the supply chains? How real are delays in terms of getting those types of products in the hands of the manufacturers and the, and the appropriate parties? What's the reality of the supply chain difficulties? Sure. So you have the supply chain disruption that's been happening with a lot of other industry as well in terms of being able to get the freight rates are extremely high right now or to get the timely deliveries uh, of batteries as well. Most of the battery manufacturing is coming from Asia, right? So it's subject to that Asian supply chain. That's number one. Number two, a lot of the batteries where they tend to go first are is to the electric vehicles. That tends to be a little bit of a higher margin type product. The batteries have been flowing there first. So as a result, grid scale storage and also residential batteries, those are, are let's say second and third in line, right, for the batteries. So they're having a little bit more wait times. And there's a number of gigafactories, as they call them, that are being developed to get ahead of this demand that will come for batteries, right? Because we do have this uh, th this shortage. So that, that will continue on for the foreseeable future, more and more gigafactories rolled out. And at the same time, manufacturers of the batteries and also the auto OEMs are looking at that, how do we integrate you know, upstream so we can get at the lithium, we can get at the nickel to put in contracts for that, or even potentially own the mines directly. That's even been talked about so that they have that solid supply chain for the battery because the amount of battery manufacturing is going to go up a multiple of where we are today. And you have to have those, those capabilities. And eventually we want to have, for example, here in the United States to have the supply chain for a lot of the batteries here. And there's been talked in the reconciliation bill that's being talked about, which will actually bring manufacturing tax credits 
to move that supply chain here to the U.S. And that's part of the part of the plan. So I guess on a related topic, obviously batteries sit at the center of that ecosystem with solar and wind and other parts playing an important role. Solar in particular has hit a few snags related to both supply chain issues and regulatory or tariff issues, however you'd like to define them. So spend a few minutes on what's going on in the solar market and and, and what that means for the long-term implications and adoption of that technology. Yeah, so on the, the solar market today here in the U.S. is really in disarray. And the reason for that, uh, it's not just about supply chain issues, because uh, a lot of the solar supply chain comes from Asia as well, but it also has to do with uh, a tariff case called ADCVD that's been put in front of the Department of Commerce that is actually reviewing that. And this has to do with years ago, uh, you know, most of the Chinese solar panels were all manufactured in China. Uh, there was a tariff put on place and put in place. And so a number of those manufacturers moved to certain countries in Southeast Asia, like Malaysia, Vietnam, et cetera. And there was a case put up by a U.S. manufacturer saying, hey, wait a minute, that's just a circumvention of this original tariff. And that case is in front of the DOC today. And as a result of that, it will be probably August of this year where they're expected to come out with their preliminary decision. And when that preliminary decision comes out, that will be very clear in terms of, you know, who's a bad actor and who is not. And number two, if there are a bad actor, what will be the tariff that will be imposed on that? And you're usually about 95% of the way there on the preliminary decision. The final decision will happen in the end of the year. Now, what does this all leave the industry? How does it impact the industry if we're still waiting for these decisions? The problem is that these decisions are retroactive. So if you're a developer today, it's hard for you to actually buy solar panels and bring them into the U.S. because you have no idea what that tariff might be, if any, right? So a result, also the Chinese understandably don't want to take that risk. So everything has effectively come to a standstill. Very few solar panels are coming to this country. Now, obviously, there's some U.S.-based manufacturers, but they cannot meet the demand uh, here in the U.S. for, uh, for solar. So as a result, things are... Are really up in the air and you've seen that in with this delay in terms of volume a number of projects have been pushed to the rights some of the the companies the stocks have been impacted because growth is bumped but we see this as a temporary situation this will be resolved right the department of commerce has to come out and and put a ruling on it and the most important thing is not so much the level of the tariff because the you know the solar panel costs are about 25 to 30 percent of the of the project cost, right? The level is not necessarily going to kill a lot of these projects, right? But it will need to be paid for. But we need to have certainty on what that tariff is. And once we have certainty on that tariff, a developer can go to the counterparty, whether it's a corporate that's buying the solar offtake from the, like a data center is buying the offtake from a solar plant, or it's a utility buying the offtake from a solar plant, and put that into the price to be able to pass that through. But until that happens, there's a lot of uncertainty and everything has really come to stand. So there's been a lot of pressure on the Biden administration where not so long ago, about uh, a couple of weeks ago, about 20 senators wrote letters to the Biden administration, also Department of Commerce. Every major utility and developer that's in the solar business is basically spending a lot of time in Washington these days to try to see how we can move this forward as quickly as possible, because it's a really it's put the industry to a standstill. So once that happens, 
we think the projects that have been pushed to the right will be completed. And then number two, we will accelerate the adoption and more projects that will be done because now we will have certainty and a lot of case experience from the DOC uh, that will make it much more unlikely of other cases being brought forward to the DOC. But right now it's, it's really in disarray, I would have to say. That's very interesting. And, and I want to circle back to a, a topic you mentioned earlier in the conversation, and that was hydrogen, if I can. That is a, a certainly a lesser known area of the renewable complex, certainly to me. Um, so let's spend a minute and talk about the role hydrogen plays, any structural advantages, regulatory or otherwise around the technology and sort of how you see it playing a role in the transition. Sure. So looking at hydrogen today, what is hydrogen is used today? We use hydrogen industrial processes like in refiners and, and some other manufacturing type operations. Not so much for cement, more like refiner. They use like what they use is gray hydrogen. And what gray hydrogen is, is how you produce it. It basically comes from natural gas that they use a steam reformation type process, but that process produces carbon, you know, because we're using the, the, the natural gas, but it does produce hydrogen t- today. What we're talking about is green hydrogen. Green hydrogen is made from renewables, right? So the electricity that you use for an electrolyzer, you know, that goes through an electrolysis process. If you remember your we all remember our high school chemistry class where you had that electrolysis day and you put a current through into the water and out you, you got you got some some hydrogen there. That's the same principle that's used for green hydrogen today. Use the electricity will come from solar and wind and it will use an electrolyzer that will make this hydrogen and that will be free of carbon, of course. The problem with that today is that that's very expensive and it's uh, much more expensive than gray hydrogen that's being used. So what's being talked about is how do you make that cost competitive with gray hydrogen? So you can also not only replace the gray hydrogen that's currently being used in the refineries and, and others, but also for new processes like steel production, cement, as you mentioned as well. And the key is a subsidy. For example, in the reconciliation bill that they've talked about in the past, it was formerly called the Build Back Better. We don't know what the new name might be, what they've talked about is a $3 per kilogram subsidy. That $3 kilogram subsidy will make green hydrogen competitive with gray hydrogen and will open up a whole new market for hydrogen for decarbonization. And that's really important. If that doesn't happen, hydrogen will always have a market there, but it'll be muddling through. If the $3 per kilogram subsidy happens, that will open up a large market. Europe has done some different types of subsidies and hydrogen is becoming a much larger part of their market, but that's what you'll need here in the US and of course, that's still very much up in the air in Washington today, whether that happens or not. But we're cautiously optimistic that that might uh, something could be coming down the pike. And Joss, are there currently any projects using green hydrogen right now, or is that really just still because of cost prohibitive on a, on a large scale until that cost curve comes down a bit? Yes, there are some projects that are using green hydrogen today, but they're smaller, much much smaller. What what we're talking about, if you had a subsidy with green hydrogen. You would build electrolyzers that would just be enormous because you want to get scale to get the cost down even more. But today, all the green hydrogen projects, they do exist. They're much, much smaller in scale and higher in cost. But it's hard for manufacturers and developers to scale up until they know that the economics will work. That's why the subsidy is important for hydrogen. So in a few of our topics talking through batteries and solar and hydrogen, 
the idea of subsidies and legislation and the government support around that was an important part of those topics. So let's dig in on that legislative front for just a minute and talk about what's in the pipeline potentially for energy, infrastructure, or other types of legislation. So what is your expectation in terms of activity from Washington for the back half of this year? We were talking last year about a Build Back Better bill that came out of the Biden administration. That is not going forward. That is effectively dead. Uh, What they're doing, though, is this year is trying to resurrect portions of that in a reconciliation bill eventually. Right now, Senator Manchin, who is a centrist senator from West Virginia, is having discussions on a bipartisan basis uh, with respect to this new, let's say, call it an energy security bill that will have an all above strategy, some things for oil and gas and the clean energy provisions as well. What are those clean energy provisions? They're basically four things. It's extension of tax credits on a 10-year basis for renewables such as solar and wind. Also a standalone tax credit for energy storage that doesn't exist today. And also that $3 per kilogram hydrogen tax credit. And then there's other ones as well, but those are the main, those are the main uh, ones there. And those are about 10 years in length. Uh, that's really important because if you have 10 years of visibility of the tax credits, currently they're about two to three years. They always kind of renew them at that point. But when you have 10 years, that gives visibility that allows people to come in and develop the manufacturing base and the jobs here in this country. You need to have that 10 years of visibility. That's really important. And there's also manufacturing tax credits that will help with respect to that. So that totals up to about $550 billion when you add all that together. And those have a lot of bipartisan support uh, to have it happen. However, for a variety of political reasons, we are not optimistic that a bipartisan bill will happen. We think that they'll fall short for a number of reasons, that more political type reasons. So we, we think there's a chance that if that does fall short, they will move to a reconciliation bill where they need 50 senators uh, to pass that. And we think that that could go through in a much smaller version they can do it deficit neutral and even maybe reduce debt as well as part of that. But there's tricky things in terms of pay fors and that sort of thing, how that's all structured. So there's a lot of wood to chop, but that's what's being discussed here. And it would be quite significant for the industry to put us on that path of energy transition because other countries are going down that path in Europe, uh, also in Asia, important industries that we have here in the energy with the auto industry and the and energy independence and low cost and dealing with inflation, all has to do with that. But this is an important bill, but how it shakes out from the politics there is, a, is another question. So Joss, let's let's conclude the conversation sort of going from the realities of Washington to something maybe a little bit more pie in the sky for our last section of our conversation. One of the subsets of the market that you've been an investor in is really this concept of a smart home as a general category. It's one of the clear and tangible examples of energy efficiency trends that consumers can see and and really wrap their head around. So to wrap up our conversation today, give us your vision of what the smart home will look like in the next three to five years and how smart can the home be? Yeah, so we're we're definitely have been going down that path and will continue to accelerate. Some of the easiest things for the smart home that the early adopters of, and and now it's pervasive, was a smart thermostat, right? And the smart thermostat that you have on your wall, there's an algorithm that basically uh, determines your 
your movements over time and adjust temperatures accordingly, and you can save somewhere between 10 to 15% on energy bills. That is going on to the next step where it's actually being uh, tied into appliances. And that's, you know, so things could be looked at, at at the same time. You also have additional, you might have in your home rooftop solar and also battery backup as well. And what will happen is that all these things will run together by software. We'll determine when's the right time to run the dishwasher. They'll be they'll look at power rates off peak or or on peak and when to do that. Uh, also looking at your whole electricity load and heating load for you know your your, your smart thermostat as well. We'll all bring that together. And then finally, with an electric vehicle, as we talked about before, the battery is an important part of that electric vehicle and to have access to that battery and to use it in the right way so you don't degrade the battery, but you can use it for energy reliability. Software can control that as well in terms of where you might use some of your battery to provide reliability to the grid in a short period of time, right? During these off-peak times and consumers will be compensated for that. So this is all a very complicated thing. A lot of things come together and that's why effectively software will control all of these things but it's really step-by-step how it's rolling out. And and what do you foresee is that doing to sort of the average energy consumption footprint for a home in America? How significant can the savings be over time? Well, just with a smart thermostat alone, depending on what part of the country you're in, you're in the Northeast, you can save between 10 to 15% on your energy bills. Everything else kind of adds up. You know, things are becoming much more efficient in terms of appliances. And it's really not only about the efficiency of the appliances, but how we use them, even televisions, right? We used to always have the plasma screens. Now with the LCD screens, those are much more efficient than the plasma screens. We have this constant evolution of energy efficiency. And the next thing is about usage. We talk about efficiency, where I'm not talking about conservation, which connotes sacrifice. It's really getting the same amount of benefit, but for less. And that's the whole goal of, of this, right? And then using some of your storage capabilities that you'll have with an electric vehicle or batteries in your home or rooftop solar to be able to monetize some of that for the sake of the grid, right? Which the grid will, should be able to compensate individuals for. So it's all very much interrelated. It's no longer a one-dimensional, here's a power plant here delivering lines and it goes to the, you pay for it. It's becoming multi-nodal in terms of how it operates and it should lower the cost of the overall Red because of efficiency. So, Joss, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts on the energy transition and your thoughts on the renewable and alternative markets. I appreciate your time today. I want to thank you for joining our conversation. I'll give you an opportunity to make any closing comments you'd like to make, and and thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you, Peter. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. One thing I would just say, it's very exciting. It'll have bumps in the road, but this is something which is we're just at the start of, and I appreciate you providing me the opportunity to talk here. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Future. We know your podcast listening options are endless, so we're glad you're spending time with us. Don't miss out on our next episode. And remember to subscribe today. Join our community to expand your thoughts on business, the markets, and the dynamic forces affecting them. It's time to talk future.